Hello and welcome to This Shit Really Happened, the true crime podcast where we deep dive into the most disturbing, depraved, and downright gruesome true crimes in history. My name is Adam. <laughs> and I'm Lotta. watching Carter sit like a person on his butt and just lick his belly. He said, don't talk about <laughs> me like that. <laughs> that's what he does, though. You see, like, that's the only way that he can really get around to, like, grooming his his belly because admittedly he's he's kind of fat he's a little overweight so he just he sits like so that sh- and he sticks his back like straight out so bad oh my god he's so round lick, lick, lick. he's so round it's literally so rotund. funny he is he is very rotund he's very dense he said what what <laughs> he said you're talking about me yeah, bud, we're talking about you. Mm. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> Poor dude. <laughs> Just the way he sticks his legs straight out. Oh, man. And then we have another guest. We have the Goyo. She's not showing Goyo. teeth. No, she don't want to show her teeth. No teeth. No teeth. She's being very sweet, though. She just wants to hang out. She never wants to just hang out. So this is like... We gotta absorb it while we can. I know. This is a rare, a rare event that's happening right now. She's literally just sitting here. She's like, this is my podcast. I rule this show. World domination. World domination. (laughs) (laughs) She, I just like love seeing her just like sit and hang out. Because when she was little, she was mean. She's still mean. I know, but she's a lot nicer than she was. <laughs> like, yeah, she's definitely still mean sometimes, but she was. She's so much nicer now than we she was. She had a teeth. Yeah, she's just she's she's a little sassy. She's just a little. A lot, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> dude, I'm sweating so bad. <laughs> We just got some Chinese food for dinner, and I don't know if it was, what did you say, the General So sweats? The General So sweats. But I had I had some General So chicken, and I am sweating. It was, it was hot temperature and hot taste-wise. Spicy. And I am fucking sweating. <laughs> Maybe it's also this, like, seltzer wine mix drink that's making me sweat. I don't know. Because it's, like, I don't have the heat on in here. I don't have, like, the little fireplace going. So I'm like, why oh, am I so sweaty? it's like sweaty? 75 degrees outside right now. Yeah, that's true. That's crazy. The earth is fucking dying. Dying. The earth is literally dying. This is insane. Oh my god. Well, for the sake of just getting this done as fast as I possibly can so I can like just not get up and sweaty. walk on and not be fucking sweating. Um, the case, um, if you guys follow the Instagram, TSRH podcast on Instagram, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, go follow it. Um, I oh, posted. by the way, what the Vietnam sex? Oh my god, yeah! So I literally got this email. I put the podcast just like what a couple months ago. Finally got mm-hmm. it up on Apple Music, and got an email the other day telling us that in the last thirty days we were ranking really high in Vietnam. We were like ninth. 
in true crime podcasts in Vietnam. So, so all like, you guys in Vietnam. What's woo-hoo. up, Vietnam? How we doing over in Vietnam? <laughs> <laughs> Vietnam. <laughs> I was so surprised. I was like, wow, really, of all places, Vietnam. But no, like, that's so cool. This is like the first time you guys ever like your murder over like there? Murder. Or what? Do you like us? <laughs> is it us <laughs> or is it the murder? Is it the murder? <laughs> no, this is really cool because I was like the first time that I ever had like gotten something. I was like, oh, wow, mm-hmm. you're like ranking really well, like in this country, such and such. So I was like, oh my god, like, that's so nice. Oh, thanks. It's really nice. Hair flip. Hair flip. <laughs> I know, literally, I was like, blushing, you know, do like the Debbie Ryan tuck the hair behind the ear mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, it was really cool. I was like super hype about it. That's why I saw you a screenshot. I was like, yo, look. Look at this. It's like it's over in Vietnam. Um, we also, like, I feel like we have a lot of listeners from Australia, too, which is kind of fitting with, because this is an Australian Australia. case we're doing today. This is an Australian yeah. case. Oh. So, kind of, you know, shouting hint, it hint. out to It's you. something about a backpack. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, the two the two options that I gave you to what? It was backpack and alphabet, right, yeah. I think? Mm, yeah. And you picked backpack. So, mm-hmm. we'll do. I feel like things with where you can store things, it's usually the route to go. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what the backpack is referring to. I'm probably not, but like... <laughs> That's where my mind went. That, yeah, because I had I had like two cases on the list that I thought like that we could do, and I was like, "What can I say for each one of this one that will be like interesting enough to make you think, but not specific enough to give anything away?" Alphabet is probably children. I don't want to listen to that. Yeah, well, that's coming next episode because you know I do one and then the other. So, Alphabet is also local. It happened in Rochester. Is that one of the ones that I told you about? Mm-mm. Oh. But yeah, that one's Rochester. So when we do that, uh, when we do that next week, uh, it'll be a little bit more something a little bit more local than we've ever done before. So yeah, you have to crack open that Chinese food and eat while we podcast. I just don't. <laughs> <laughs> no chewing sounds in the microphone. I don't know how many people listening want chewing ASMR. Well, I would be way back here. So. <laughs> you hear me crack it open like. I mean, hey, this microphone literally picks up the sounds of the cats fighting in the living room when we're recording in the dining room. So it'll probably pick up the sounds of you cracking open your Chinese food and it eating some. Orange chicken, actually, General Sal chicken. <laughs> Orange General Sal. <laughs> Orange, yeah, literally. Literally. It was probably the exact same fucking sauce, just with some it looks like orange same. slices sprinkled up on there. So, yeah. Um, so, we're at with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, we're going to Australia for this one. And as I was saying on the Instagram, I did post like a coming soon post. Um, so, this week we are covering the backpacker murders that happened on. Um, between the 80s and 90s um, in Australia, I believe, Man. in and around, it was the... The 90s were just as fucked as the 70s. I know. Murders. I Dude, people, like, from, like, the fucking 60s, like, to, like, the 90s, and even a little bit into the early 2000s, it's like people all were murders. just, like, <laughs> up to some fuck shit. Especially, like, what the we 70s do? is, like, top tier for... Because everybody was hitchhiking, mm-hmm. getting fucking murdered on the side of the road. Yep. Ted Bundy was literally fucking bashing people's heads in in their beds. Fucking, that was crazy. Jeffrey Dahmer was out here eating people's brains. Smashing people's bones to dust. Literally. Like Herb Baumeister. Ah, (laughs) Except that he wasn't doing it to dust. He was using it as garden. That's insane. Yeah. Like they literally like left in his backyard. And And the fact that those are not pebbles, those are bone fragments. And his wife was just like, oh, what cute pebbles. (laughs) I know they're like, bitch. 
bitch, come on. You gotta know that's not a fucking pebble. Bitch. But she was, I mean, she was trying to just live the, uh, no. The high life being. Now we have a bunch of ghosts of Save-A-Lots. There's Save-A-Lot in um, Rochester, I think. Is there? Mm-hmm. There, I know there's still some around, but yeah, they're really not. Well, because they fucking went bankrupt and their CEO was a murderer. <laughs> Who fucking murder. offed himself. Murder. <laughs> that should have been a t-shirt. Murder. <laughs> that, next one. Next yeah, round. Right next round. Oh, man. So, yeah, we're going to Australia, specifically New South Wales, Australia. Um, So these murders, they happened, I believe, like, in the late 80s, but the bodies were not discovered until the early 90s. So there was obviously a lot of time between the crimes and the discovery, and then, you know, it was like once they found, like, the first bodies, they just kept finding more and more and more. So it was like... Just a domino effect after that, yeah. Um, This case, it actually inspired, like, one of my favorite horror movies ever. And, like, one of Die Die's favorite horror movies ever. It's, like, it's, like, a cult classic horror movie. It's called Wolf Creek. And if anybody's ever seen that movie, you're gonna know exactly, like, where this case is going. Because the, like, main antagonist in Wolf Creek is based very, very heavily off of this serial killer from this case. So I kind of structure this a little bit different than I usually do because usually I go like biography on the murderer and then murders. I'm doing it backwards. We're starting. We're starting from the discovery of the first bodies, and then we're gonna kind of go through all the crimes, all the bodies, everything, and then get into a little bit about the person who did all of this stuff. So I didn't list out trigger warnings for this on the top of my document like I usually do, but. Um, this case is very brutal and there's a lot of like very in-depth descriptions of the injuries that were found on these bodies. So like anybody listening, just keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. This is going to be a little graphic this is as be- per the rest of the episodes. Yeah. So I guess true warnings is, you know, descriptions of injuries, violence, um, mentions there, there. of possible sexual assault, et cetera, et cetera. Mare there. <laughs> I feel like anybody listening to this podcast now, like, y'all know what you're getting into. How so. would you spell mare there? Mare there. Um, I don't know. I would do, like, like just a U with, like, M- one of those, like, accent marks I over it. I would do M-E-R. Mare. Mare. Mare there. D-A-I-R. D-A, right. D-A-I-R. Dare. All right. So, to start us off, we are going back to September 19th, 1992. So on this day, two runners, they discovered a concealed corpse while they were doing this thing called orienteering, which it's like an outdoor jogging activity where one person holds a map and then directs the other person to like run to a certain location. And then they swap maps and they run to another location. So it's kind of like, it's almost like geocaching, like how people just go to like random geo markers mm. on like, your maps, but this was before Google Maps, so Mm. people use, like, physical maps Mm. and lead each other to specific locations on this map, and then they would, like, swap off and, you know, do it for however long they wanted to do it. So, these two runners, I think both of their names were Keith. (laughs) They were both Keith. Keith and Keith. (laughs) Keith and Keith. (laughs) They were orienteering in the Belanglo State Forest in New South Wales, Australia, when they stumbled upon this body. So, they find the body, and, like, they immediately call the police they're like yo um we we found something the police 
come to the Blangle Forest and not long after the discovery of the first body, because they just found a body, obviously. So the first thing they're going to do is they're going to sweep the area. They found a second body 30 meters or about 100 feet away from the first body. So they identified these bodies um, specifically like to get the actual confirmed identification. They had to identify them through dental records. And the bodies were identified as being those of 21-year-old Caroline Clark and 22-year-old Joanne Walters, both of whom had gone missing from King's Cross in Australia on April 18, 1992. So these bodies were actually only a couple months old, and these will find out um, Caroline and um, Joanne. They were the first bodies found, but they were the last victims, which is why they were so, I guess, Feels weird to say why they were so fresh, but <laughs> in, comparison, so fresh. Yeah, in comparison to the states of the other bodies, like they're less decomposed, much less decomposed than the other bodies. So it was actually Joanne's body. That was the one that was discovered by Keith and Keith. And then they discovered Caroline's body when they were, um, what's like scoping the area out around where they found Joanne. So Joanne's father, Ray Walters, he had become very concerned when Joanne hadn't called him on Father's Day. She was like, she would call home all the time because she and Caroline were actually from, I think, the UK. And so they were just on a backpacking trip in Australia. So she would call home like whenever she could. She was very communicative with her family, just telling them about like what she'd been up to that day, where exactly in Australia they were. And she was the type that like she would not have missed the opportunity to call home on Father's Day and like say Happy Father's Day to her father. Mm. So after Ray did not hear from Joanne, the first thing he did, he actually called her bank and asked them to tell him, like, when was the last date that she had withdrawn money from her bank account? Mm -hmm. And they told him that she had just taken money out on the 18th of May, which was just a few days earlier. So he's like, okay, like, she used her bank account. Like, he was very relieved to hear this because he took that as meaning. You know, she's, she's still alive. alive. Maybe she's just caught up somewhere. She doesn't have cell service. She's in the fucking Australian bush. So mm. who knows if she's got access to a phone. Um, however, like an hour later after this phone call, the teller that he talked to called him back. And he said, I'm so sorry. I made a mistake. This wasn't a withdrawal. It was just like a scheduled transaction. She hasn't actually withdrawn anything from her bank account physically since April 16th. Oh, shit. And that was just so happened to be the day after the last time that she had called home. Oh. So, um, in this call, when she was talking to her father, Joanne had mentioned that she was going to be hitchhiking into Melbourne. She had never hitchhiked before. And even her mom, Jill, like, got on the phone with Joanne and was like, hey, be careful. (laughs) You know, because, like. Mm-hmm. you're hitchhiking that can be dangerous as past mm-hmm. <laughs> events have gone to show like this was they're from the uk but i'm sure mm-hmm. you know yeah like, i'm sure everybody knows oh so god yeah like ed kemper like who killed hitchhikers ted bundy like they were everywhere so mm-hmm. people from the uk definitely knew about these cases so her mom was just like hey be careful mm-hmm. so also like i mentioned joanne was from britain so her return ticket her flight home was supposed to bring her home on the 27th of may mm-hmm. and her visa that she was on to be in australia it um expired on the 28th of may mm-hmm. so if she wasn't back like if they hadn't heard from there they're like this is serious because now at this point a she's about to miss her flight home and b her visa is about to expire right so now going to talk a little bit about caroline clark the last time that she had called home to her parents was on April 12th. Mm-hmm. 
She told her parents um, about Joanne. They had actually, like, met on this backpacking trip. Mm. So she said, yo, I met this girl. Her name's Joanne Walters. Um, They got a job picking, like, melons in Perth, Australia. So she was just kind of giving them an update. Oh, yeah, things are going good. Like, this is what we're up to. Um, Caroline's calls tended to be very fast when she was calling home. She didn't give a lot of information, again, because they're in the middle of the Australian bush. I can't imagine phone service is very good. Mm-hmm. So what she did instead is, like, every three or four weeks or so, she would, um, her parents would get a letter from her, giving them more details, like, about what she was up to, where they're going next, just, like, in general, what their plans were. Mm. So though she did that often, like, it was not a definitive routine of checking in with her parents. So her parents, they didn't really get concerned about the fact that they hadn't heard from her for over a month until she didn't call home for her sister's birthday that was on May 8th. And then she also missed calling home for her father's birthday on May 24th. Mm. So they're like, um, you know, like, that's a little worrisome that she didn't call back for either of these birthdays. But, you know, ultimately they pulled the same theory. They thought maybe Caroline was just out somewhere in the Australian bush where she didn't have access to a phone and she would call when she was able to. So Caroline's parents were just like, you know... Trying to, oh, here comes the bump. He was just looking at me like this. I know. He was trying to find a way up here. We're sitting on the couch recording this, so we are just, all three cats are up here, so. Bird just gave him the nastiest she, look. And that's so funny, too, because he's the one cat that Bird actually likes. He just bonked him right in the head. <laughs> sorry, I mean, he didn't mean <laughs> he it. He just killed one of his remaining brains. <laughs> the one he had left is gone now. But yeah. Um, if y'all hear any jingling in the background, any meowing, because now Bubby's up here and he likes to scream. Um, just, you know, letting you know early in advance that all three cats are up on the couch right now. <laughs> so, and they're yeah. all relaxing. And they're all chilling and they're all hanging out. So... Yeah, like I mentioned, Caroline's parents, they were obviously a little bit worried that she hadn't called home for her sister or her father's birthday, but ultimately they were again just thinking maybe she just doesn't have access to a phone right now. Like, we're sure she'll call us when she's able to. So Joanne had given her parents a whole lot more information about Caroline than Caroline had given her parents about Joanne. So Ray, Joanne's father, was actually able to take some of the information that Joanne gave him about Caroline to track down her parents' phone number. So he calls his phone number and he actually gets in contact with Caroline's brother, Simon, who gives Ray like his parents' actual phone number. And he tells Ray that his parents are on holiday with friends in Cornwall. Mm -hmm. So he is trying to call this phone number. Like his parents aren't home. He's trying their landline. They're not home. Mm -hmm. So what Ray actually does is he tracks them down to their hotel and he finds them and he's like, look at this. It's like taking skills. I know. Like, literally, this guy was like, like, I could go so in-depth to all the things that Ray Walters did at the beginning of this investigation to try to... He's like, oh, we're finding them. Yeah. He was like, we're going to find my fucking daughter. Literally. Mm-hmm. It's like he said, this is like taking shit. He mm-hmm. was not, he was not going to let it go. So he meets up with the Clarks and he's like, you know, these are my fears. Like, I haven't heard from Joanne. This is not like her. I'm really, really worried. Mm-hmm. The Clarks were actually able to get themselves and Ray in touch with um, a man named Philip Corbett. He was the head of security at the Bank of England where Ian Clark, Caroline's father, actually worked. Mm. And the nice thing about Philip Corbett was he was also the former head of the International and Serious Crime Branch of the Metropolitan Police. Mm. Um, And this branch kind of like liaises with other countries on like 
practical crime fighting. Mm-hmm. So they had an in. They had a very good connection mm-hmm. with the police. Mm-hmm. Corbett himself was also, like, very impressed by all the work Ray Walters had done. So, like, he was like, damn, all right, this dude has, like, compiled lots of shit. Like, he was Literally. very, very impressed. Um, however, because of all the work that Ray Walters had done and because, you know, the concerns that he had just, like, explaining how it was very unlike Joanne to not have called home, how worried he was. Philip Corbett was immediately like, I think something happened to these girls. So he Mm. was immediately on that mindset. He's like, Mm. hey, like, I know you're trying to keep it positive, but my gut tells me that something happened to these girls. Yeah. So because the girls disappeared from from King's Cross, it was the King's Cross police who had jurisdiction over the case. Unfortunately, the King's Cross police were, like, notoriously corrupt back in, like, the 80s and the 90s. Many of the officers were, like, in the back pockets of drug dealers and pimps. So, like, they were not giving a shit. They were just trying to line their own pockets. And because of this, the investigation into Joanne and Caroline's case, like, in the early months of it, like, it really suffered. Mm -hmm. They lost a lot of time. I mean... Ultimately, it's not going to matter because Caroline and Joanne were dead by the time um, they were they were worried ever, about it. Yeah, so it wouldn't have done anything. But, you know, ultimately, it might have saved a few other people. Well, well Caroline and Joanne were the last victims. Uh, it just probably would have saved, like, their parents a lot of worry and, you yeah. know, hardship. Because, like, the Clarks and, like, Ray Walters and his wife Jill, they actually were taking turns flying from Britain to Australia to help look for Caroline and Joanne for, like, months. And mm-hmm. so, like, it could have saved them a lot of time had the King's Cross yeah. Police Department actually gotten their shit together and did some things a lot sooner than they actually did them. Yeah. Um, the Clarks and the Walters, they used the media to their advantage as well, and the case actually gained a very large public following, and they had sightings of the girls being reported, like, coming in from states all over Australia which is, like, great that they were coming in, but also not great because a lot of them were just dead ends. They weren't leads, and the resources were being used to follow up on these leads, and, like, nothing was coming from them. They did get news that the girls had been hitchhiking, and those were, like, some of the most promising leads because, remember, Joanne mm-hmm. had told her mom, hey, we're hitchhiking into Melbourne, so, like, all right, these are the leads that are going to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, but, again, the leads really, they just, they were going nowhere. And the longer this was happening the longer the leads were drying up like the Clarks and the Walters they finally like faced that harsh truth you know it was it was highly possible that Joanne and Caroline were dead were dead so when Joanne and Caroline's bodies were discovered it was immediately clear like they had not just been killed like they were they were butchered like Mm. brutally brutally butchered Senior Constable Andrew Gross from the Goldburn Police Crime Scene Unit, he was the first on scene after Joanne's body was discovered by the joggers Keith and Keith. Mm-hmm. He observed, like, when he came up to the scene of the body, he said he could see somebody's right elbow. He said the skin was hardened and yellow, and it was protruding from the side of a pile of, like, dry sticks and leaves. Mm-hmm. Like, the killer had, like, tried to cover her up. Mm-hmm. And he could see the top of a head and boots sticking out of each end of this pile of sticks and leaves. The body was face down on its stomach. He could tell right away that it was a female body. Her right arm was extended above her head. Her left arm was down to her side. Mm-hmm. And both of her legs are straight and slightly apart, with the feet turning inward. So, so she was, she like, was on just, her stomach, legs out, feet in. She was just, like, flopped Literally, down. she was just, like, laying. 
Yeah. Basically in like a supine position on the ground. Mm. She was wearing a dark blue t-shirt, blue jeans, and black shoes. And they had all been turned like this like dirty like black and purple color just by the fluids from her decomposition. Mm. When they rolled her over, they discovered that her t-shirt and bra were pulled up over her breasts and the fly of her jeans was unbuttoned. So it was like a button fly. So like the top one was done, but all the rest were open. Mm. Like somebody very quickly just, just did the top it. button mm. up. Yeah. She also had two rings on her hand. One was buckle-shaped, and the other had a stone in it, and she had a bracelet on her left hand. And it was this jewelry that confirmed the body as being that of Joanne Walters before the dental records ever came back. Mm. Um, so they find Joanne's body, right? And the police, obviously, like, they have been in communication to this point with the Walters and with the Clarks, so they know that Joanne was traveling with Caroline Clark. So they find Joanne, and then the next question is, all right, Here's Joanne. Where's? Where's Caroline? Mm-hmm. So shortly after the removal of Joanne's body, police in the Barima District Volunteer Rescue Squad gathered on the Longacre Creek Fire Trail, which was in this park where Joanne's body was discovered. At 7.30 a.m., under the guidance of police, they commenced a spiral line search with basically just, you have a central point and you spiral outwards from mm-hmm. that point until you either find something or you canvas the entire area. So, of course, they start where Joanne's body is found. They move in a circle, slowly swinging out. And they, again, were only about 30 meters away from where Joanne's body was found when somebody, you know. Because, in like, when you're in a search, you, like, if you find something, you, like, call out, like, mm-hmm. I found something or something mm-hmm. like that. So, somebody calls that out. The search halts. Um, senior constables Suzanne Roberts and Roger Goh, they were the ones that actually spotted something. They spotted um, a pile of sticks under the trunk of a fallen gum tree. And what it looked to them, it looked like some clothing and the form of some human limb. Mm. So Roberts called out to Andy Gross. Um, He was just a short distance away. So Andy Gross, like, kind of clears the search party. He comes over to the same location and it is another body. So, again, the body appeared to be female. She, too, was lying on her stomach, and she was actually kind of, like, wedged into the side of that gum tree. Her head was wrapped in red cloth, and it looked like it had bullet holes through it. Both of her arms were extended above her head, and, again, her legs were straight out with the Pete pointing. Pete. I said Pete's. The Pete's. With the Pete's. <laughs> Not the Pete's. <laughs> with her feet pointing slightly inward, basically in the same position that Joanne's body had been in. Strangely, she was also far more decayed than the first body was, and they theorized that this was due to the fact that she was in a much more exposed position than Joanne had been. So again, this body is discovered as that of Caroline Clark. And shortly after the discovery of Joanne and Caroline's bodies, the parents were notified. I think it was the Walters who were actually in Australia at the time, but I could be wrong. One of the families was in Australia, but, you know, they still notified them. And, like, they were devastated because, you know, even though you, like, have the acceptance, like, in your head, like, okay, like, something probably happened to them, you still have, like, that little bit of hope, like, holding out, like, you know, maybe they're alive, like, maybe, just maybe... Like, they're going to come back and they're going to be like, oh, sorry for causing, like, such a ruckus. Like, I totally didn't mean to. And so, you know, getting the news that they had found the bodies, like, both of the families were just absolutely devastated. And it did not help when 
Caroline and um, Joanne's autopsies were done. Because these autopsies, they revealed a multitude of just absolutely brutal injuries to both of these girls. Joanne had been stabbed 21 times in the back and 14 times in the chest. She had been stabbed so viciously that one of the blows had severed her spine. Caroline had been shot 10 times in the head while she was blindfolded and then stabbed in the chest. And they theorized that due to the amount of gunshot wounds in the same location, because one or two headshots is going to fucking do it. She was shot 10 times in the head. Anger. They theorized that her killer was using her for target practice. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. So... A year after the discovery of Joanne and Caroline, the police found two more bodies. Um, well, not the police, but I should say two more bodies were discovered. In October of 1993, a local man who was literally, he was just out like collecting firewood. He discovered bones in a particularly remote section of this same forest. He immediately contacts the police. The police returned to the scene where the two bodies were quickly discovered and later identified as being James Gibson <laughs> And Deborah Everest. Both James and Deborah were 19, and they had been missing since leaving for leaving Sydney for Confest. I don't even know what Confest is. I could imagine it's probably like probably some like sort of festival. festival. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that was near Albury, and they went missing on December 30th, 1989. Mind you, it's 1993 now when their bodies are discovered. Um, the first body that was found was of Deborah. She was wearing a silver fob chain, a silver crucifix, a bracelet with multicolored stones, and some smaller jewelry. The second body, um, police could see, like, they were so decomposed, basically it was a skeleton. It was a skeleton. So this body was, the remains were lying on their left-hand side in a fetal position. It was hard to see exactly, like, what clothing they were wearing, again, because the bodies were so badly decomposed, the clothing was very badly rotted, mm-hmm. but they could make out denim jeans, what was possibly a green shirt, and that he was wearing size 11 shoes that were still on his feet. Upon later examination, James's body showed eight stab wounds. Mm-hmm. One of his stab wounds went through the mid-thoracic spine, so that's like the area between your shoulder blades, mm-hmm. and it cut lengthwise up three vertebrae. So he wasn't just stabbed. He was stabbed, and then the knife was yanked mm. upwards yeah. significantly from oh God. from to up three vertebrae. Yeah, it said from the top of the sixth through the entire fifth and the lower part of the fourth. It passed through the canal that holds the spinal cord and would have paralyzed him. It was also found that, like with Joanne Walters, the fly of James's jeans had been undone. Like the zipper was done, but the button mm. was together. Deborah's body showed clearly that she had been savagely beaten. Her skull was fractured in two places. Her jaw was broken, and there were four knife marks in the bone of her forehead. Oh, my God. Yeah. So these knife marks, it was two on each side of her hairline. Mm -hmm. They looked like they had been made with, like, a hard, like, slashing motion. Like, she Mm -hmm. wasn't said she was, like, slashed. Um, and they thought it would have been from the blade of a large knife or even a sword. But the crazy thing is, imagine how much force you have to have to make knife marks in somebody's skull. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, these, this person, like, he did not just murder people. He fucking butchered them. Mm. The amount of just, like, anger. rage and anger that he had for complete strangers was insane. Literally left... Slash marks 
in her fucking skull. In her bones. So, you know, these, they, they figured that, again, like, they weren't severe enough to have caused death. Like, you, you know, you cut yourself on your face, on your scalp, your forehead. It, it's going to bleed very mm-hmm. severely. So, they figured she'd been bleeding very severely, probably getting mm-hmm. in her eyes. She can't see. Mm-hmm. Um, she, too, had been stabbed in the back just once. Um, her stab wound was through the lower left rib, which would have entered the chest cavity from behind. Mm-hmm. So, again, through the back, like, up into the chest. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about nine centimeters left of the spine. So, very, very close to her spine. Um, he will find that this is something he did often and that he liked to do. He was aiming to paralyze people. Great. So, he just missed on Deborah. Um, but the stab wound, it would have penetrated her left lung and probably severed into her heart or severed her aorta. So Bruce Pryor was the man who discovered James and Deborah's body, and he was immediately brought in for questioning, of course, which is just a thing. Please do. <laughs> They're like having a stare down I right know. now. Ralph and Bird, you know, for context, we all listening. Ralph and Bird are sitting very close to each other on Autumn's lap, and Bird was just giving. He's like, at me like this. Ralph, like, she's like, why did you invite him over here? She likes Ralph, but sometimes she is, is kind of mean to him. She'll just, like, slap him in the head. For no, and Ralph is rocking airplane ears right now, so he's not happy about something. <laughs> something is bothering him. <laughs> um, oh, big stretch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's doing a big stretch. Oh, he's so handsome. All right, anyways. <laughs> so Bruce Pryor, again, he was the man who discovered James and Deborah's body. The police brought him in for questioning. They asked him what he'd been doing out in the bush that day and whether he picked up hitchhikers often. Um, His entire interview, like, they just brought him in basically, like, oh, we're just going to ask you some questions. His interview turned into a full-on interrogation that lasted for five hours. The guy who found them? Yeah, the guy who found the bodies. Um, It seems suspicious to them. See, she just slapped him. (laughs) That was rude. (laughs) He's like, what the fuck? I know, his face. I told you, sometimes Birdie will just... Hey, 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 stop that. Not on me. You're being rude. Teeth. <laughs> she says, I will bite. I'll show you my teeth. <laughs> no, thank you. She's mean. She's so mean. He's literally not doing anything to her. Literally. She's like, he's close he's to me. He's he, breathing on me. He literally was like, what the fuck? I know his face. He was so sad about it. <laughs> and poor Carter. Carter is just, he's sleeping. He's snoozing. He's got his legs out. He got his belly out. He's like, I appreciate you guys doing this over here. So I, I can know. Be he's comfy. like, so I can like hang out. I know. Mm-hmm. Not have to sit by the chairs and squeak at us. Hey, 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 hey. If you can't be civil, you're going to get kicked off the couch. You will not be smacking people on me. <laughs> She's like, want that. <laughs> All right. Anyways, so like I was saying, the police found Bruce Pryor suspicious for the first reason because they asked him like what he was doing out on the trail that day. And his answer was that he had just, like, felt drawn to the trail that day. And police were like, mm, that's suspicious. That's mm, weird. That's you just suspicious. felt drawn to the trail, and then you found two bodies? Hmm, strange. So weird. They just, they just asked him outright if he had anything to do with their deaths. And he was like, no. He's like, I just, I bushwalk sometimes. Like, it's something I do often. It's so weird to hear. We're in the bush. We're in the bush. The Australian bush. <laughs> I can't do an Australian accent, so I'm not even going to try. Yeah, um, no. Because we have like listeners from being... Australia and people, they're going to judge me. <laughs> I feel like my Australian accent might end up sounding British. And it's I not just... a knife. This is a knife. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got. 
That's a quote from Wolf Creek, but I do think it's originally from Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> I know Jesus it from Christ. I know it from Wolf Creek. If I'm quoting that, I'm quoting Wolf Creek. I'm not quoting Crocodile Dundee. Um. So eventually, Bruce Pryor was let go after five hours of just being fucking interrogating. But you know, they he's just, like, bro, I was just going for a walk. And I know, to literally, he's like, I was just trying to have like a nice, fucking, relaxing wash, wash, walk <laughs> through the bush. And now I washed I mean, through the bush. I washed through that bush. I was trying to wash myself in the bush. <laughs> I would have been like, bro, what? Yeah. So he did eventually get let go on because they're like, yeah, he it's a little sus, but, you know, we've literally got nothing to hold you on. So you're free to go. Mm. So the next body to be discovered was discovered on November 1st, 1993. So mm. very soon after um, James and Deborah's bodies were found. Um, on this date, a skeleton was found in a clearing along a fire trail in the forest during another police sweep. It was later identified as that of 21-year-old um, Simone Schmidl, who was a German... Simone Schmidl. Simone Schmidl. She was a German tourist who had been missing since leaving Sydney from Melbourne on January 20th, 1991. Her skeleton bore at least eight stab wounds, yeah. two of which had severed her spine. So how many victims are we at now? Uh, we are now at five. Yes, we got Joanne and Caroline, James and Deborah, and now Simone. Mm-hmm. Um, again, two of the stab wounds had severed her spine. And the other stab wounds would have punctured both her heart and her lungs. One stab wound went through the cervical spine. So that is your neck, for those of you who are not familiar. Um, about halfway down her neck. And the other one was in the thoracic spine. Again, between the shoulder blades. So both of those stab wounds were from behind. They would have caused instant paralysis and difficulty breathing. The wound in the back of the neck indicated that if Simone had been standing, the blade would have been like at a flat angle horizontal through the spine and would have required a severe degree of force to do the damage that it did. There were four stab wounds to the back of the left chest and two in the back of the right chest, all of which left indents and nick marks in her ribs. They were all either from behind or from the side, mainly from behind. Some of the ribs had even cracked under the pressure of the knife. Oh my God. Near where Simone's body was found, police discovered multiple bullet casings that were also the same type as those used in the murder of Caroline Clark. So they're finding connections now. Mm. At this point, you know, all they had was a very similar MO. Mm. Like, every all the stab wounds, the fact that the... Paralyzing. Um, the paralyzation, right. The fact that the stab wounds were from the back. Mm. But now they have something physical mm. linking Caroline Clark and Simone Schmidl. Mm. They also discovered a pair of pink women's jeans near Simone's body that did not belong to Simone. These, these jeans actually belonged to Anya Habsheed, who was one half of a German couple that had gone missing after leaving King's Cross, just like Joanne and Caroline had. Um, they left King's Cross for Mildura on December 26, 1991. So the bodies of 20-year-old Anya and 21-year-old um, Gabor Neujbauer were discovered shortly after Simone. They found these two bodies on November 4th, 1993. Anya's skeletal remains were discovered first. She was laying face down like the victims before her. Um, while most of her skeleton was located after the branches and the debris was moved, um, Anya's skull was missing. Oh. It was also clear that there was no clothing or shoes on the lower half of her remains. And when looking over the remains they found of Gabor, they found that his skull had several small caliber holes in it. Mm. And what they would do is they would they had a metal detector and they would wave it over the body. And the metal detector confirmed the presence of bullets in his skull. Oh, 
So the bones were taken from where they were discovered and carefully moved to the medical examiner to be further like cleaned and examined. Um, so once the bones were cleaned, it was very clear that Anya had been decapitated. Everything, like, they did eventually find her skull. It just wasn't with her body when they found mm-hmm. the body initially. So, with her body, everything was present. Um, oh, wait, no, they didn't find her skull. Never mind. I thought they did. Never mind. <laughs> so, they did not find her skull. It says any, everything was present except the head mm-hmm. and the first three vertebrae. Oh. Um, most, of the fir- most of the fourth vertebrae was also gone. So, that means he took the head before decomposition. That means it wasn't a person. That means she really was decapitated yes. and he took the head. Yes, he did something with it. Mm-hmm. So along with head those, soup. the head, the three vertebrae, a huge chunk of her fourth vertebra, she was also missing the hyoid bone, which is the bone like in your throat mm-hmm. that can detect like if somebody was strangled to death because mm-hmm. oftentimes you will break the hyoid bone mm-hmm. while manually strangling somebody. Mm-hmm. So that bone was missing and she was also missing some small bones from her hands, her wrists, her ankles, and her feet. Mm-hmm. The only injury on her body that was evident was the, quote, oblique cut clean through the spine from the lower part of the fourth vertebra upwards as it went through from back to front. So from the way that this cut was made, the medical examiner determined that only a single powerful blow from a heavy, sharp weapon, such as a machete, a large knife, a sword, or an axe, could make such a clean cut. Mm. The angle, and like, this is like, the most horrific part of it, if you ask me, the angle of the cut, this strongly suggested to him that she had to have had her head bent forward with her chin down so to like her a chest guillotine? as far as it could go. It was as if her killer had made her kneel mm. with her head down mm. like it was some sort of ceremonial execution. Because, like, that's how they did that shit back in the olden days. If you were going to decapitate someone with a sword, you put them on their knees. Mm-hmm. They put their head down to open up the back of their neck. Mm-hmm. And the sword was brought down from so back to So we got a weirdo on our hands. Man. We've got a fucking sicko on our hands. <laughs> this dude was brutal as fuck, dude. Uh, moving on to the examination of Gabor's body. So after his remains were examined, they found that he had... He actually had the remains of, like, gags in... Like, with his remains. So, he was actually gagged twice. So, inside his mouth was what appeared to be, like, a small apron or a small girl's dress. Which, like, I couldn't find anything that explained, like, where this came from and who it belonged to. Mm-hmm. Um, And then it was tied with another cloth over it, like, like a bandana. You know how you tie mm-hmm. a bandana to cover the bottom half of your face? Mm-hmm. That was tied over his mouth, over the fabric that was inside of his mouth. Gabor's zipper was also down with the top button secured. His hyoid bone was broken, suggesting that he had either been strangled or received a heavy blow, possibly a kick, directly to his throat. Oof. There were six bullet entry holes in his skull and a number of fractures to the skull and upper jaw. Like Caroline Clark, these were consistent with shattering caused by the explosive force of the bullets. So basically, he was shot so many times that it shattered his jaw. Oh my god. From Gabor's skull, they were able to pull four 22 caliber bullets and immediately set to work trying to find out if the bullets had been fired from the same gun that killed Caroline Clark. However, because two years had passed since Gabor's disappearance, the chemical reactions um, between the bullets and the decaying brain tissue had actually wiped every single mark on those bullets clean. So there was no way that they could be used to link Gabor and Caroline's murders to the same gun. Mm. So from the moment that Joanne Walters and Caroline Clark's bodies were found, 
police were immediately launching a full-scale hunt for their killer. Mm. And as more bodies were discovered, more and more resources were dedicated to this investigation. Because at first it was just, you know, who murdered these two young girls? Now it's, holy shit, who's murdering all these fucking people? Right. So they're putting tons and tons of resources into this investigation. Um, In response to the fines, on October 14th, 1993, um, Task Force Air, which contained more than 20 detectives and analysts, was set up by the New South Wales Police. On November 5th, 1993, the New South Wales government increased the reward in relation to the serial killings, like any information, they were offering $500,000 for. And this was 1993, so I don't know. That's probably, like, I don't know. I don't know the exchange rate, but significant amount of money for mm-hmm. any information that led them to this killer. Right. They also gave out public warnings, which were particularly aimed at international backpackers to avoid hitchhiking along on like the main highways in New South Wales. Mm-hmm. There were, as we kind of went over, there were very similar aspects to all of the murders. So each of the bodies had been dumped in a remote bushland. They were covered often by stacks of sticks and leaves and you know whatever brush was kind of around forensic study determined again that each had suffered multiple stab wounds to the torso and many showed signs of sexual assault like the drop fly um they theorized that the killer he had he was more than likely probably a local who had access to a four-wheel drive vehicle because he would have had to drive out into that remote area which Anywhere is tough to do, but, like, I imagine, like, especially in Australia, because it's, like, I feel like Australia just is, like, extreme wilderness. <laughs> like, not normal wilderness. With giant spiders. Literally, with giant spiders, fucking any, everything in Australia can kill you. It can kill you, and it will kill you. Yes. Do not hesitate. <laughs> yeah. They found, too, that he, they theorized that he had spent considerable time with his victims, both during and after the murders, as they found remnants of campsites as well, very close to the location That's of each body they found. disgusting. Yeah, I'm going to hang out here and look at these dead he's bodies. He's like, I am so satisfied by what I did that I'm going to hang out with these bodies. I'm going to camp out here and just look at them. Yeah, I'm just going to... Black. I'm just going to revel in what I've done. Fucking gross. They also found matching 22 caliber bullets, shell casings, and cartridge cartridge boxes from two weapons um, at multiple crime scenes. So they've got significant links between all these victims. So they know they are searching for, you know, one, maybe two killers right. for all of these victims. Mm-hmm. So speculation arose that the a crime... A stabby one and a shooty one. A stabby one and a shooty one. Speculation arose that the crimes were the work of several killers, given that most of the victims had been attacked while in pairs had been mm-hmm. killed in different ways and then buried separately. So again, mm-hmm. like you said, a stabby mm-hmm. one and a shooty one. Mm-hmm. Um, authorities counted that between 1989 and 1992, the killer acted about every 12 months. His target of choice were young travelers, both men and women, whom he picked up as they tried to grab rides from strangers going from Sydney into Melbourne. On November 13th, 1993, police received a call from a 24-year-old man named Paul Onions, who was from the UK. Um, on January 25th, 1990, Onions told them that he, like, he was reporting that this happened again on January 25th, 1990. He said that he was backpacking in Australia, and while he was hitchhiking from Liverpool Station towards Mildura, he accepted a ride south out of um, Kasula, where he was, from a man who called himself Bill. Um, 
They were south of a Red town. flag number one. I know. Bill. His name was Bill. His name was Bill. So they were south of a town called Mittagong and less than one kilometer away from that Belanglo State Forest when Bill stopped the car. He pulled out a revolver and some ropes. Ropes. Oh, my fucking God. Ropes with a P. I don't know what a rope is. Mm, probably sound crazy. I, I don't know. I don't even. Is that really? I should Google that. Is hey, a rote a thing? Hey, Siri. What is a rote? Here's what I found from yourdictionary.com. Road is defined as a routine mechanical way of doing something. Huh. Interesting. Hmm. Not what I expected, but okay. Mm-hmm. Well, he did not pull out a rope. He pulled out some ropes. <laughs> and he told Paul Onions that he was going to rob him. And it was at this point, luckily, Onions was able to flee out of the car and run away while Bill was in the car and was just, like, shooting him. Thankfully, Bill missed. Um... Onions continued running until he was able to flag down a passing motorist named Joanne Barry. And together they sped off. Um, they went to the police, who they, who Paul described the assailant and the ordeal that he went through. He described this to police. Um, on April 13th, 1994, detectives re-found the note regarding Onions' call and sought the original report from this police department, but the report was actually missing. Um, fortunately, though, a constable had recorded details in her own notebook, so they at least had something. Um, Onion's statement was then corroborated by Joanne Barry, who had also contacted the investigation team, along with the girlfriend of a man who worked with Ivan Malat, who he thought should be questioned over the case. So now we have somebody naming a name. So who the fuck is Ivan Malat? What's up with this dude? So he was born Ivan Robert Marco Malat on December 27, 1944 in Guilford, New South Wales. He was the son of a Croatian emigrant and laborer named Stephen Marco Malat and of an Australian woman who was named Margaret Elizabeth Piddleston. And these two married when Margaret was 16. Milat was the fifth Great. of their 14 children. Ugh. Yeah, they had a lot of fucking kids. That's a lot of fucking I do think ones. two of the children passed mm. um, in childhood. So total, they had, Twelve. that's a lot of fucking kids still. Twelve mm. living children. Mm. The family first lived in the Bosley Park suburb of Sydney um, before they relocated into Liverpool. And many, there was ten brothers altogether. Ten boys in this family. Two girls. Um, and many of these boys were very well known to local police around Liverpool. They were always in some sort of fucking trouble. Um, according to Malat's older brother, Boris, um, he is he actually like Boris is like the only member of this family who is like gone and spoken out publicly against Ivan. Mm. He said that Ivan showed signs of psychopathic behavior from a very early age. Um, when Ivan was 17, he allegedly confessed to Boris about accidentally shooting a taxi driver during a stick-up gone awry. Um, he said that the man was left, like, the man didn't die, didn't, wasn't killed, but he was left paralyzed from the waist down. Uh, Milat was never caught for this, and actually an innocent man was subsequently convicted and served five years in prison for that crime. Wow. Um, according to Boris, he says, quote, Ivan was pretty normal up until 12, 14. I heard about it from his mates, you know. They'd all boast about how they'd go out at night and do things with machetes. I heard he cut a dog in half with a machete while he was growing up. Mm, not um, the dog. Yeah, I know. This dude, he was so, this dude was fucked up. Like, he, animal cruelty, like, he didn't even, I mean, of course, well, he didn't clearly. even bat an eye to fucking animal cruelty. Look what he was doing to people. Mm-hmm. Um. So this is where, like, we start to see a lot of these connections. After I say this line to you, you're going to get it right away. 
So Milat, one of the things that he bragged to his friends about more than anything was how was that he knew how to make somebody quote a head on a stick. Milat would then go to explain exactly how to do such a thing. So I pulled this quote from the book that I read. It was called Sins of the Brother by Mark Whitaker. Mm. Um, the quote says, quote, what you do, you just stick a knife down their back here, he said, pointing to the piece of the spine that juts out at the base of the neck. You put that in and they're paralyzed from the neck down. They're alive. They know what's going on, but they can't do a thing. So we think back to a lot of those injuries that were mm-hmm. found on those bodies This is exactly what he was Mm -hmm. doing to people. And it was, it came out too that a lot of the injuries, well, yes, they were the cause of death. They did not cause instant death. So he would, you know, unless he shot you in the fucking head 10 times. But a lot of these stab wounds, literally, he would just, he would stab them, paralyze them, and leave them there to bleed to death. So, also, by the age of 17, Milat was in a juvenile detention center for theft. And at age 19, he was involved in a string of uh, store break-ins. Great. In 1964, he was sentenced to 18 months for a break-and-enter. And a month after his release, he was arrested for driving a stolen car and sentenced to two years hard labor. In September of 1967, when Milat was 22, he was sentenced to three years imprisonment for theft. In April of 1971, Milat was charged with the abduction of two 18-year-old hitchhikers, one of whom he raped. While awaiting trial for this, he was involved in a string of robberies with some of his <laughs> brothers before he tried faking his before he faked his suicide and fled to New Zealand. Great. Um, he was subsequently rearrested in 1974, but the robbery and kidnap cases against him failed at trial with the help of Milat's family lawyer, John Marsden. Milat then took a job as a truck driver in 1975, and by the time of his arrest, he had worked on and off um, for the Roads and Traffic Authority for 20 years. He also attempted the rape and murder of two more women in 1977, for which he was never charged. He did marry a woman um, who was 15 years younger than him in 1984, um, but their marriage very quickly went south. Um, And as a result of this marriage going south, Milat went and burned down her parents' home. (laughs) <laughs> his ex-wife actually testified against Milat in court and said that her ex-husband was obsessed with guns and known to be incredibly violent. Great. So now that they have this name, they've pulled Milat's history. The police are like, all right, this might be our guy. Let's go ahead and let's look into him a little bit more. So the police reached out to the two women who had been hitchhiking in 1977 near the forest and had nearly escaped murder at the hands of an anonymous man with, quote, black, straggly hair. Which, I didn't mean a lot, had straggly black hair, like a big fucking mustache. Um, and after being shown a series of photos, which included both Ivan Milat and his brother Richard, one of the women was able to identify both Ivan and his brother Richard. On February 26, 1994, police surveillance of the Milat house at Cinnabar Street in Eagle Vale began. The home was owned and shared between Ivan Milat and his sister Shirley Soiree on who many people actually said was some way involved in these murders. Great. Um, Milak's youngest brother, George, did report that Shirley was in on it. He said he wasn't really sure, like, if she actually physically helped him commit the murders, but he's like, all I can say is she was involved. Like, at the very mm-hmm. least, she knew about it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it was also reported that Soiree and Milot allegedly had a sexual relationship since the 1950s. Wait, wait. Did you say brother? They were brothers. Yeah, they're sister? siblings. They're siblings. They were doing the incest. That's fucking Since disgusting. the 1950s. That is absolutely disgusting. And this is 1994. So it's been going on for over 40 years at this point. Reportedly. Allegedly. But they were fucking sicko, so they probably were fucking nasty asses. Mm. Police also learned that Milat had recently sold his silver Nissan Patrol four-wheel drive shortly after the discoveries of Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters. They also confirmed that Milat had not been working on any of the days of the attacks, and some of his acquaintances also told police about Milat's obsession with weapons. Like, it wasn't just a hobby for him. He was obsessed with guns and knives. He had a fuck ton of them just in mm. this house. Um, when the connection between the Belanglo murders and Paul Onions' experience was made, um, authorities flew Paul Onions back out to Australia to then help them with this investigation. Mm. On May 5th, 1994, Onions positively identified Ivan Milot as the man who had picked him up and attempted to murder him. Um, investigation efforts culminated in a search of Milot's home on May 22nd, 1994. Teams of armed police dressed in bulletproof vests surrounded the perimeter of the home. Mm -hmm. And Malat was outside during this because they basically like, get the fuck out. Like, and so he's out and he's standing in like kind of like the doorway area and he's laughing and he's mocking like the lead negotiator of this. Like, it's so fucking funny. He just sees all of this like it's a big fucking joke. Once the team of armed police were able to place Ivan Milat under under arrest, they searched the premises and found a postcard from someone from New Zealand who referred to Milat as Bill. Mm. The same firearms, cartridges, and electrical tape found at some of the murder scenes, and they also found Indonesian currency. This was strange because Milat had never been to Indonesia before, but victims um, Gabor and Anya, they had spent time in Indonesia before traveling to Australia. Wow. The search of Malat's home also revealed various weapons, including a 22 caliber rifle, parts of a 22 caliber Ruger rifle that also matched the type used in the murders, a Browning pistol, and a large Bowie knife. They also uncovered more foreign currency, clothing, a tent, sleeping bags, camping equipment, and cameras belonging to several of the victims. Homes belonging to his mother and five of his brothers were also searched at the same time by over 300 police, and they uncovered a total of 24 weapons, 250 kilograms of ammunition, and several more items belonging to the victims. So they fucking arrest him. They got his ass. They're like, you're going to court, motherfucker. We got you. So Milat appeared in court on May 23rd of that same year, but he did not enter a plea. Mm. On May 31st, Milat was also charged or Milat was charged with these seven backpacker murders. On June 28th, Milat fired his defense lawyer, lawyer who was that James Marsden, I believe, the one who had gotten him off the hook for, like, the robbery charge, I believe. Mm. Um, and he sought legal aid to pay for his defense. Meanwhile, Milat's brothers, Richard and Walter, were tried in relations to, like, the weapons, drugs, and all the stolen items that they found in all of these properties. It's like, Milat was definitely, like, the worst of the crop of his brothers, but, like, they Many of his shit. brothers were all shitty, trashy, terrible people. A committal hearing for Milot regarding the murders began on October 24th and lasted until the 12th of December, during which over 200 witnesses appeared. 
Based on the evidence, at the beginning of February 1995, Milat was remanded in custody until June of that same year. On March 26, 1996, the trial opened at the NSW Supreme Court and was prosecuted by Mark Tedeschi. So Milat's defense argued that in spite of all the fucking evidence that they had, (laughs) there was no non-circumstantial proof that Milat was guilty and they attempted to shift the blame to other members of the Malat family, particularly Richard. 145 witnesses took the stand, including members of the Milat family who tried to provide alibis um, for Milat and for themselves. And then on June 18th, Ivan Milat took the stand in his own defense. On July 27th, 1996, after 18 weeks of testimony, a jury found Ivan Milat guilty of the seven murders. He was given a life sentence on each count without the possibility of parole. He was also convicted of the attempted murder, false imprisonment of, and false imprisonment of Paul Onions, for which he received six years jail each. So 12 total for both of those charges. So he got a lot of jail time. He got like seven life sentences plus 12 years for trying to kidnap Paul Onions. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, they, they, uh, they're like, yeah, motherfucker. You're, you're never getting you're out. Getting out. <laughs> Um, so on his first day in prison, he actually got, like, his ass beat by another <laughs> inmate. <laughs> like, I love prison justice. Yes. Thinking that they're like, yeah, motherfucker, you think you're tough? Right. I love prison justice. I'm like, I know I shouldn't be cheering for, like, people, like, assaulting or, like, murdering other people. But it's Fuck at a certain it. point, it's like. You're a piece of shit. Right. Fuck it. <laughs> it's like, you, you deserve it. It's like, uh, how Jeffrey Dahmer got a shit rocked and got yeah, like, in prison. Mm, sorry, I was like, yeah, but you Bye. had that coming. You really did. <laughs> and like, you know, sex offenders and like mm-hmm. pedophiles. I'm like, I'm like, put them in fucking gen pop. Let them get their fucking what they deserve. Sorry about you. Yeah, really. Like you were a sicko enough to do shit to children and you're going to be protected? I think the fuck now. We're throwing mm-hmm. your ass out there. You're going to give somebody who's a lifer. They don't give a fuck. They're already in there forever. They're going to rock your shit. They're like, oh, I got nothing to lose anyway. Literally. <laughs> what are you going to put What are they going to do? Pump me in life. Give me life in prison. <laughs> another one. Life. <laughs> another one. Stack on through to all the Are you going to add another 75 years to my 300? <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, I got 300 years in here, motherfucker. I'm not worried about nothing. <laughs> What are you going to do? Put me in solid air for a couple months? <laughs> it's like, it'll be a nice little vacation. <laughs> At least I got rid of this fuck. I know, right? Seriously. Yeah, so he got beaten up by another inmate literally on his first day. Yeah. Um, almost a year later, on May 16, 1977, he actually tried to escape along with another um, inmate who was a convicted drug dealer on, and a former Sydney counselor who was named George Savis. Um, the plan failed. <laughs> And Savis was actually found hanged in his cell the next day. And Milot was then transferred to the maximum security section at Goldburn Correctional Center in Goldburn, New South Wales. In November 1977, Milot appealed against his convictions. He said due to a breach of his common law right to legal representation as established in Dietrich versus the Queen. Um, but he fired his fucking attorney. I was going to say, he got rid of him. Yeah, he fired his attorney. So... The New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeals were like, no, fuck you, and dismissed the, dismissed the appeal. 
In 2004, Milat filed an application with the High Court of Australia that he be allowed special leave to appeal on new grounds. No. The application for this leave was ultimately dismissed, affirming the original Court of Criminal Appeals' decision to disallow that initial appeal. I'd be like, dude, you murdered all of these fucking yeah, people. Yeah, literally. Brutally. <laughs> Brutally. You fucking butchered them. You butchered them. All right, you don't deserve any fucking appeals. Literally nothing. Uh, on October 27, 2005, um, the NSW Supreme Court denied Milot's final avenue of appeal. So even the Supreme Court was like, no, fuck you, stop appealing. In 2006, two other application attempts were rejected as well, as was one in November of 2011. So he just kept fucking trying. Um, I mean, gotta give it to him. Very persistent. Yeah, he, like... He was such a fucking shithead. <laughs> um, in 2001, following the opening of the High Risk Management Correction Center at Goulburn Correctional Center, Milad was then transferred over to the maximum security center of that prison um, into one of his 45, one of the 45 new units. And in 2006, um, news was actually broke that Milad had been allowed to have a TV and a toaster in his cell, and this caused like significant public outcry. People were pissed. That he was getting any sort of, like, benefits or, like, preferential treatment. Like, this motherfucker deserves nothing. Mm. He deserves, like, a tiny little mat to sleep on and a fucking bucket to piss in. Mm. They're like, don't give him a fucking thing. Do not give him shit. Literally, don't fucking give him anything. He also gave some interviews when he was in prison. On November 8th, 2004, he gave a televised interview on Australian Story in which he denied that any of his family had been involved with the seven murders. Phone recordings made for the Australian Broadcasting Commission's Australian Story program in 2004 um, had Malat stating that his grounds, like he talked about why he thought he was going to be found innocent at trial, basically. Because mm-hmm. he never really, he never said the words like, I did this. He mm-hmm. never confessed, which is why we don't really know anything about the actual circumstances of the murders and like how they happened, like who was killed, like, when the pair's like, who died first, how he did it, they only have what they could find from the remains and, like, the medical evidence. Because mm-hmm. he didn't he didn't say anything. He gave them nothing. And he thought he was going to be found innocent, he said, because, uh, quote, my basic defense in my trial was that it wasn't me. I don't know who did it. It was up to them to prove my guilt, not for me to prove my innocence. So he was like, if I just don't say I did it, <laughs> they got to prove it. it was me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have to prove it wasn't me. <laughs> Basically, so that was that was his thought process as to why he thought he was going to be found innocent. (laughs) Fucking dumb, dude! Like they found so much of these people's shit in your house. You have all this evidence stacked up against you, bro. You're not getting out. I know. Seriously, he's fucking stupid. Um, on January twenty sixth, two thousand nine, Milot cut off his own little finger with a plastic knife with the intention just needs a fix. He. He cut it off because he was going to mail it to the High Court of Australia to force them to give him an appeal. How how he thought that was going to work, I don't fucking know. He's like, I'm going to cut off my finger instead of that. They're going to have to give me an appeal after this. This dude was a fucking shithead. What the hell? He was a shithead. In the purest sense, he was a fucking shithead. He had also, um, before this, he had also previously harmed himself in 2000, or 2001 mm-hmm. when he swallowed razor blades staples and other metal objects mm. for why yeah i don't fucking know so that way they can go to the prisoners 
stuff like that. <laughs> oh, my God. You. I was brewing that sneeze for, like, five minutes. Holy shit. They do stuff like that so they can go to the hospital mm-hmm. and get a little vacation. Exactly. Get some preferential treatment for a little while. Mm-hmm. In May of 2011, Milot went on a nine-day hunger strike in which he lost 15 kilograms in an unsuccessful attempt to be given a PlayStation. Bro. Bro. I'm, like, he was, he was a fucking shithead. Like, he, he was never, he was always causing trouble in some sort of fucking way. I wish more prisoners beat his ass. <laughs> like, please. What? He was such a shit, dude. Um, finally, in May of 2019, Milot was transferred to the Prince of Wales Hospital in Randwick and was subsequently diagnosed with terminal, terminal esophageal cancer. Good bitch. On October 27th, 2019, Milot died from esophagus and stomach cancer at 4.07 a.m. within the hospital wing at Long Bay Correctional Center. He was 74 years old. Bitch. Prior to his death, Milot wrote a letter to his family requesting that his funeral be paid for by the New South Wales government. The request was denied by the New South Wales Corrections Minister Anthony Roberts, Mm -hmm. and instead Milot's body was cremated with the full reimbursement cost to be paid from his prison account. Mm -hmm. So they took his own money. They're like, Mm -hmm. you're going to pay for yourself, motherfucker. Mm -hmm. So even after Milot was dead, and though he never, like, fully verbally confessed to any of the murders, mm. police maintain that Milat could have been involved in more attacks or murders than the seven for which he was convicted. Mm. Based on MO similarities, examples of crimes they thought he could have been involved in um, included that of Karen Rowland, who was 20 years old and disappeared on February 26, 1975, who was found in the Fairburn Pine Plantation in May of 1971. Paul Letcher, who was 18, who went missing in November of 1987 and was then found in Janolan State Forest in 1988. Mm. Um, Diane Pinacchio, I think is how this last name is pronounced. Um, mm-hmm. He was 29. She disappeared on September 6, 1991 and was found in the Tal- Talaganda State Forest in November of 1991. Further, given the possibility of an accomplice, the murder cases were kept open. Because, again, they thought that it, like, because... They killed people in pairs. All, like, the victims had been in pairs. Mm. So they were thinking, like, we're not going to close the case because we think it might be pretty likely that he could have had an accomplice, so we're going to keep this case open. On um, July 18th, 2005, Milat's former lawyer, Marsden, he made a deathbed statement in which he claimed that Milat had been assisted by his sister, Shirley, um, in the killings of the two backpackers, Caroline and Joanne. But at this point, by the time Marsden gave this confession, um, Shirley Soiree was already dead. She died in 2003. Damn. Although Milot died never having confessed, he is said to have told his mother Margaret, with whom he had a close relationship shortly before her death in 2001, that he was responsible for the backpacker murders. In 2012, also Milot's great-nephew, Matthew Milot, was sentenced to at least 30 years in prison for the axe murder of a friend in the same forest that all of the bodies of Ivan Malat's victims were found. Wow. The court heard he later gloated about the murder, saying, quote, that's just what the Malats do. And so they're is, all just a bunch of murdery shit. Yeah. Shows. Yeah. Like, even their, even his great-nephew. Yeah. Disgusting. He said that's just what the Malats do. And that's the case of the backpacker murders in Ivan Malat. All of the fucking family of fucks. Literally, there was like there was like Boris was like the only one, and I think George, like the youngest brother, were like the only two. I and I haven't ever heard anything about like the sisters, 
But besides like the one. Oh yeah, besides Shirley, it was a fucking nasty incest. Bit. <clears throat> Disgusting. <laughs> Disgusting. Carter is gross. It's so gross. Can we get a Carter purring ASMR? Where did my phone? He gave it a headbutt. He headbutted it. I hope you guys heard that Carter <laughs> wub. He gave it a wub. Yeah, so. Yeah, this, like, this just one is so, like, just the method in which he killed these victims is so brutal. Like, the stab from the back. Mm-hmm. Like, literally so, like, who was, it was, like, I forget if it was, no, it was Simone, I think, right? They said that he stabbed her so viciously that it cracked her ribs. Yeah. That was fucking insane. Lay down. Literally insane. Oh, he said, I lay right here. <laughs> so, yeah, Ivan Malone's fucked up. Wolf Creek, great movie. If anybody listening has never seen Wolf Creek, um, please go watch it. It's free on Tubi. <laughs> free on Tubi. I'm pretty sure it's on Amazon Prime, too. You can find it on a ton of streaming services. But, yeah, the uh, main antagonist in Wolf Creek is based heavily on Ivan Bilat and these murders. So, yeah, that was... Backpacker murders. How do you feel? That was not as bad as the rest of them, honestly. Yeah, this I think this one is yes, it's still terribly brutal, but mm. we don't we're only describing like injuries after the fact. We mm. don't have any details of like the actual murders. Right. Because he, he never said anything. Yeah, we don't have like And there are no survivors. Right. No survivors. And it's not like with, you know, like Lawrence Bittaker and mm. Roy Where Norris, how there was, like, tapes other. and pictures. Yeah, mm. and fucking Norris was ratting on Bittaker, and Bittaker was trying to rat on Norris. So, yeah. Like, you can hear about those injuries. You're like, wow, shit, that's brutal. Mm. But it's a lot different than being like, oh, they said this to her, and they did this and did this, and she screamed and said this. Mm. So, it's, like, a little, like, what, like, 10 degrees of separation. Literally. You can kind of detach yourself from it rather than having to hear about literally all the brutal details of everything. So you can kind of yourself, desensitize yourself to just hearing about the injuries, which is like, holy shit, that's still brutal. But, you know, it's not poor Shirley Ledford I know. getting tortured in great specific detail, Literally. you know, sort of deal. But, yeah. Um, next episode, we'll do the alphabet killer. Heads up, forewarn, uh, pre-trigger warning. That one does involve the murder of children. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we'll be talking about that one next episode. Great. Um, if you hung around this long, thank you so much. We appreciate you being here. Um, shout out to people in Vietnam if you're listening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening. Shout out to anybody else listening. We appreciate you. If you want to follow us on Instagram, it's at TSR po- TSRH Podcast on Instagram. We also have a Facebook page, TSRH Podcast on Facebook. You can send us an email, TSRHpodcast at gmail.com. Um, and do whatever the hell you want to do. Follow the Instagram. <laughs> yeah, follow that shit. Follow the Instagram. Let's chat. Tell you tell us what you thought about this case. Um Tell us how much a shithead Ivan Milad is, because we agree. Fuck yeah. <laughs> and go watch Wolf Creek, because that's a great movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they literally use the line, head on a stick, in that mm-hmm. movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's sick. like, the like I don't want to give any spoilers, that, but yeah. You know he's that like, comedian, uh, what is it, Jeff, Jeff Dunham? Jeff Jalapeno Dunham. Jalapeno on a stick. Jalapeno on a stick. Except, yeah, he was making heads on a stick. So, yeah. um, fuck that guy. But go watch Wolf Creek. Great movie. Great. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it for us. Autumn, do you have anything else to say to the people? Not a goddamn thing. Not a goddamn thing. Thank you so much for being here, and we'll see you in the next one. Um, bye. bye.
We're gonna do an audio test, which I'm doing right now. And the Olsen twins really went off the rail too. <laughs> We're recording this right now. <laughs> Bloopers at the end. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> if anybody actually sticks around long enough to hear, he's, hey! Hey, yo. <laughs>